Can I ask you to open in your Bible to Acts chapter 5? We're continuing on through the book of Acts. We come today to the story of the imprisonment and release, the flogging and the joy of the apostles. Acts 5, 17 through the end of the chapter in the Pew Bible. You can find it on page 1082. My wife Cindy and I just came back from a two-week trip in the Middle East, and we spent time with one of our mission partners, Sean and uh, Lisa Lachelle and their family, and uh, traveled with, with Sean to some of the different teams that he shepherds that are busy doing church planting. And boy, our Respect for Sean has just risen and increased so much as we've uh, seen the work that he's doing and the way that he leads and uh, the perseverance and the skill that this man has. So it was a great trip. So we come to Acts 5, starting with verse 17. And it's a story of a setback. Setbacks happen. Your Moving along, you have your plans laid, things look like they're going to work out, and everything blows up in your face. Uh, You find yourself hindered. You find uh, God's work slowed down or turned back. This is the story of a setback overruled, a setback that was canceled, and there is no setback. In fact, it creates an advance. And it's encouraging. Talk about setbacks. Um, this church in 2008, we invested in recording the Jesus film for an unreached people group. We had someone come to us during our missions conference from the Jesus Film Project, and uh, we were going to fund the translation of this evangelistic film into a a language, and we said, give us a real unreached people group. We want, we want something that's pioneering. We want to focus on unreached peoples. And so they gave us a real tough nut. And that was 2008. Six years later, it still hasn't been cracked. And so it has turned into a real lesson, a real prayer project for us as a church. We've learned that there are Things that can only be accomplished by prayer because one setback after another has kept this work from going ahead. A passage like this, though, where the setback is overcome encourages us and reminds us to keep pressing ahead. Luke is writing to people who understood, who had experienced who had faced setbacks. And the early Christian movement experienced setback after setback. In fact, as we move ahead in the story, we come to chapter 7. Here, this wonderful new preacher and teacher is raised up named Stephen. And by the end of chapter 7, he's dead. He's uh, killed by stoning. You come to chapter uh, th- that, that same time, and a persecution breaks out, and everybody's scattered. You come to chapter 12, One of the apostles, the brother of John, James, is put to death. It's just mentioned in one verse, and you move on. A real setback. And then, uh, miraculously, this fellow, the persecutor, Saul, Paul, becomes the 
the uh, proclaimer, the messenger of the truth of the gospel. And his life is one setback after another. Everywhere he goes, things get turned around and he gets pushed back, but he keeps getting up and going on to the next place. And the whole book ends with Paul years in prison, years going through trial after trial after trial. One huge setback, and that's the ending of the book, and we're left there. But here, in Acts 5, Jesus overturns the setback. And what this shows is that since Jesus rules over setbacks, his messengers keep speaking. Jesus is Lord, and nothing stops him. So we're just going to go through this passage, and we're going to see Jesus ruling again and again as things are pushed back and as the setbacks take place. So first, we're going to start with verse 17 up through 26, and we're going to see that Jesus rules over imprisonment, that Jesus rules over jails. Acts 5.17, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, They called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force, because they feared that the people would stone them. So Jesus rules over imprisonments. As we look at this passage, we see two authorities in conflict. So there's a conflict between two sides. And we also see three kinds of messengers. So let's look at the different messengers. First of all, we have to remember that the apostles are messengers. And that's what the book of Acts is about. At the beginning of Acts, we sort of have the theme verse, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the apostles go out as the messengers of Jesus carrying the message, the gospel, the good news. And then we see, uh, as we start in verse 17, we see the high priest and all of his associates, and they have messengers as well. And they're opposed to what the apostles are doing. So they're filled with jealousy. They arrest the apostles and put them in the public jail. So the high priest himself didn't come in his robes and make these arrests. He has messengers who carry out things like this. So we meet the captain of the temple guard. We hear about his officers. We find them going and coming and reporting back, and and they're being sent. And so 
the high priest has messengers. When it's time for the high priest to gather the Sanhedrin, he doesn't go himself knocking on doors, getting all the members of the Sanhedrin together. He has messengers who do that. So the apostles are messengers. The high priest has messengers. And the high priest's messengers go and arrest the apostles and lock them up in the prison. And he also has messengers who can stand guard at the door of the prison and carry out the will of the high priest. But there's another messenger, a third messenger in the story. And so in verse 19 and 20, Jesus has a messenger. The word is angel. But if you were reading this in the original language, it would just be the word messenger. There's no special word for angel. An angel is just God's messenger. And that reminds us that the Bible is not very interested in angels and who they are. It doesn't teach us much at all about angels. It just tells us about what the angel did because angel just means messenger and the whole point of a messenger is who is sending him and what he is sending him to do. So whenever you see an angel, the point is that God is sending to have his will done, to have his message brought and to accomplish what he wants. And in this case, the angel of the Lord is an angel from Jesus being sent to let Jesus' messengers, the apostles, out of the prison. And he gives them a message from Jesus in verse 20. Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. So exactly what the high priest and the Sanhedrin had told them not to do, Jesus' messenger comes and tells them to do. Um, how do you go and stand in the temple courts after you've been arrested for doing so, after you've already been warned by the Sanhedrin, now you've been brought up for trial before the Sanhedrin, and the angel lets you out of the prison, don't you want to escape? Isn't that the thing to do? That's what Peter does when an angel lets him out of the prison in Acts 12. But no... The angel gave them the message they need to go into the temple courts and proclaim this new life. And they do it early in the morning, first thing in the morning. They're getting in there to obey the message. What motivates them to do that? Maybe it could motivate us to be able to speak of the good news. I think the thing that motivates them is right there in the message itself. Go and tell the people the full message of this new life. Tell them all about new life in Jesus. It's better to have the gospel, to have the words of life, to have the experience of this new life than it is to have safety. The gospel is sweet. The new life that we find in Christ is sweet. It's precious. It's wonderful. And if you have it, you can't hold on to it. And danger doesn't quite seems so dangerous when the gospel is at stake. The gospel is better than safety because Jesus rules over prisons and Jesus also rules over authorities. So verse 27 through 32, we see that Jesus rules over 
the authorities, the, up, the, uh, the higher ups, the, the big shots. Jesus rules over people who are able to have things done the way they want them done and who are able to command respect. Jesus commands over them. And uh, the high priest has authority. On the one hand, you have the high priest with all of his messengers. On the other hand, you have Jesus with his messengers. The two of them are in conflict. One is contradicting the other. And uh, the high priest is no one to be trifled with. He is God's representative. And the Old Testament, the Word of God, has established him with that authority. He is the one with the authority to pronounce blessings. He is the one with the responsibility to teach. He is the one responsible to maintain purity among God's people. And so he is more or less the prince. He is the real leader in Israel. He is the one who is acknowledged to have a legitimate right to lead in Israel. And so he's the one who can call the Sanhedrin. When the Sanhedrin gathers, he is the one who does the questioning. So let's read and see how Jesus reigns over authorities like this. Verses 27 to 32. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So Jesus is taking away the authority of the high priests. He opens the prison that the high priest shut. He tells the apostles to preach when the high priest and the Sanhedrin told them not to. And when the captain of the guard goes with his officers to re-arrest the apostles and to gather them back from the temple where they're teaching again, they do so without force because they're afraid of being stoned. They're afraid that the people will stone them. Stoning was the penalty for blasphemy. It's the penalty for handling the holy things in an unholy way. And so it seems as if the, the, these messengers of the high priest going with the high priest's own authority into the temple to arrest the apostles might arouse the people to stone them because of blasphemy, because what they're doing is mishandling the apostles who are holy. The people have come to turn everything upside down. It's not the high priest who is treated as holy, but it's now the apostles who are treated as holy and respected as holy by the people. The authority is being taken away from the high priest and given to the apostles. 
So the, the whole point of last week's passage was how the authority is given to the apostles. Now it's the apostles who have the authority to give blessings. It's the apostles who have, who have the authority to teach. It's the apostles who maintain holiness among the people of God. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira and the lying and deception among the people of God. It was uh, Peter who uh, brought, uh, brought that to, to uh, justice. The apostles now have the authority, and it's been taken away from the high priest. So when the high priest brings them into the Sanhedrin, and the high priest himself begins to question them, the apostles answer back. Peter, probably the spokesman on all the other apostles, uh, verifying what he says, And he confronts the high priest and he confronts the Sanhedrin and he calls them to repent. Look at verse 30. This is uh, what you call chutzpah. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. And so he's accusing them of murder and of guilt. They need to repent. And then he calls upon these leaders, these authorities, to submit, verse 31. God exalted him, Jesus, to his own right hand as prince and savior. You need to bow the knee to the real prince of Israel, who is Jesus and not the high priest. So he's calling them to submit. Uh, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. It's Jesus who is the real high priest. And uh, he calls them to listen. Verse 32. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So this is direct confrontation. Do we have the courage that these men had to tell the authorities we must obey God rather than men. Well, you know, it's, it's different. We live in a different time, a different place. We don't have something like the temple. Israel was a unique nation where God dwelt among them, and the temple was the place where God's teaching was given with his authority, and the people were constituted together as God's people. Our society is built on pluralism. It's built on the freedom of conscience that different people can believe different things and we don't compel people to believe a certain thing. We don't enforce religion in a pluralistic society. And this is a good thing. It's something that Christians and Christianity are largely responsible for in in the history of the West. So... We don't have the same kind of government set up as they had. If you have a job, you're hired to work, not to preach. You need to do that. If you have power or authority, you have to be careful as a believer in Christ not to use that in a way that coerces people into the Christian faith. That would be contrary to what you believe. We don't believe in coercion. We believe in people hearing and receiving good news, their hearts being changed, and they're drawn by the love of Christ, a spiritual love that convinces their hearts. So it's a different kind of world. I think that if the apostles came 
today, they would have some catching up to do with the way the world has changed. But I think we would probably have some catching up to do as well. Because I think we may be at risk of letting pluralism become a god and replace Jesus as Lord. And it becomes difficult for us to speak up and tell the truth and to stand and say, yes, we have different views, but Jesus is Lord. And people need to hear and believe in him. And so there's a challenge for us to think through how we can be faithful in our setting and in our time. Not to hide behind, well, I was just following orders. Well, this is the way things are done today. Well, we live in a pluralistic society, so I'll keep quiet and I won't talk about Jesus. When he comes, those answers won't work. It's encouraging to see teachers carefully finding ways to tell the good news of Jesus um, outside of class time. Or business owners looking for ways to encourage employees to explore the faith and giving them opportunities to hear the gospel. Medical people looking for appropriate ways that don't misuse the trust and authority that they have, appropriate ways to express their faith through their work. It's encouraging to see that. Christianity says that Jesus is Lord, and we can't uh, give over to authorities and surrender that truth. There is no authority but him. So Jesus reigns over imprisonments. He reigns over authorities. He takes away authority and gives it in the name of Jesus to those who carry his message. And Jesus rules over governments. Things were going, not going the way that the high priest wanted them to go. Um, he called the Sanhedrin together. That's one of the great things about being the high priest. You can call the Sanhedrin together to hear a case. So he did that. And, and things, things uh, finally happened the way he wanted them to at that point. He got the apostles up in front of the Sanhedrin. And the, the apostles did what the apostles are always doing. They were forthright and they said what they're going to say and they wouldn't take it back and they're not going to listen to people. They're going to continue doing what they think is God's will. And it was just what he was hoping, that there was going to be a collision between the Sanhedrin and the apostles. So at that moment, the high priest must have been very happy. It's a great thing to be high priest. Now, finally, action will be taken to put a stop to this Christian movement. But uh, the, the bad thing about the Sanhedrin is that the Sanhedrin is divided. There are two parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They disagreed about almost everything. And when something comes up before the Sanhedrin, you never quite know what's going to happen. And so everything was going well until Gamaliel stood up. Let's read verses 33 through 39. And when they heard this, the Sanhedrin heard what the apostles, what Peter and the apostles said to them, we must obey God rather than men. When they heard this, 
They were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. So Gamaliel's advice, keep away. Get them out of here. Don't do anything drastic. It's not advice to do nothing. There's something that will be done. Gamaliel's reason. Gamaliel is a Pharisee. He is open to the possibility that God may speak, that God may intervene, that God may be doing something, that there may be an angel, that there may be a message, that there may be a work of God going on. And so he wants to be open-minded. The Sadducees are very materialistic, and they only believe in in, uh, rocks and hard things, and they're not impressed by these claims of the apostles. And so there could have been a great big debate and argument in the council, but Gamaliel knew how to, how to work this so that he flattered the council with their wisdom and how wisely they had dealt with past cases, and then he counsels a cautious uh, course of action, and he persuades the people. His reason is the evidence. Look at the the boldness of the apostles. It's remarkable. It's miraculous. These unschooled fishermen who stand up before the Sanhedrin at the risk of their lives to proclaim this Jesus, perhaps something like this is the finger of God. Look at the miracles that they've been doing. Those listed in the the, uh, previous verses, uh, the first part of chapter 5. And, of course, the prison door is opening. And look at the growth of the movement. There are now thousands of believers in Jerusalem. So look at the evidence. Um, so the workers serving the Bella people were all forced to flee from the country where they were doing their work, the country where, they, where most of the Bella people live. And... Uh, You know, they were being rounded up by the security forces and um, interrogated and, uh, you know, all their things confiscated, given three days to leave. There's no time to sell your car, sell your house. Some things confiscated, like your computer and things like this. And uh, so it it was very discouraging, a terrible setback. And the work really... Uh, really suffered because the access to the people, the main body of the, the Bella tribe, the Bella tribes who speak their own language, 
that's been taken away for these foreign workers. Um, the, the, uh, the worker that we were visiting with when we traveled on our trip, uh, Rick, he was taking us around to different areas and we were visiting some of the Bella people in a neighboring country. He was telling us about his daughter and, and, and what she said about all these things. She, she said two things. The first thing that came out a while after these events was, Dad, I'm sure glad that you didn't get arrested and have to spend time in jail. And then another time, this, this girl, she's nine, going on 35. She's really something. She said, you know, I think I really like this Christianity stuff. I think I really believe it, but there's one thing that bothers me. Why is God so patient with the security forces? Uh, Jesus is patient sometimes with governments. Things don't always go the way that, uh, that would make sense to us. We might... Expect him to guide things in a different way. But governments and laws will go their own way. For us as believers, there are two things to remember. One is that Jesus has his hand on them. That he is guiding them. Whatever happens, whatever door closes, there's always another way. His work will still go forward. And so... The first thing is to know that the hand of Jesus is on all those events. And the second thing is to yield to him, to trust him, and to expect him to be at work and to continue faithfully serving him. So know that he is Lord over those things and then treat him as Lord and continue to trust him and serve him and to not give up. And this passage just opens up his lordship and lets us see so that we can be encouraged and hold on to it. Whether he might knock down the barriers, open the way, cancel the setbacks, or whether we might go through the difficulties that are coming upon us. Either way, we know that he's lord and we don't give up. Jesus reigns over imprisonments. He reigns over authorities. He reigns over governments. And lastly, he reigns over mistreatment. So Gamaliel has talked the leaders down from the drastic action of executing the apostles. Uh, But they still take action. They flog the apostles. In verses 40 through 42, let me read. But I want you to notice the response of the apostles to the flogging. So his speech persuaded them. Chapter 5, verse 40 They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So this was probably the 39 lashes, the 40 lashes minus one that the Jews gave. That was supposed to be the maximum number of stripes according to the law, but at this time, the Jews took it to be the prescribed number of stripes. And so, especially for a a real offense, like directly disobeying the Sanhedrin, they would go ahead and give the full 39 lashes a third of them on your chest, a 
two-thirds of them on your back. Fortunately, this is not the Roman scourge like what Jesus suffered, which has bits of metal and bone and stone in the, in the, in the lashes, but it's good enough. It's very memorable. It makes an impression. It says that they went out rejoicing. It doesn't say that they went out smiling. They weren't patting each other on the back. But they were rejoicing. And so you see all the the upside-down things when Jesus is ruling hearts, when Jesus is ruling over the mistreatment that people experience, when Jesus is ruling over the suffering that people experience as they serve him. Everything is upside down and backwards because you're getting close to the cross where everything is upside down and backwards, where the Holy One was treated as the unholy one, where the righteous one was made to suffer a penalty for sin, and where the sinners and those who are unclean are washed and made pure. That's the cross. And so when you go in the name of Jesus and you experience some kind of negative repercussions, and you experience the pain of mistreatment, you find that you're closer to Jesus and the meaning of the cross starts to become very real to you. And you stop and you say, did I do something wrong? And you say, no, I actually didn't. Or maybe you did and then you you have to repent of that. But if if you're really understanding scripture right and your conscience is clear and you know you did the right thing, then all of a sudden you realize, I'm in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus. I'm experiencing what he experienced. And you're encouraged and you're strengthened and you begin to experience a joy that doesn't take away the pain, but it overshadows it. So the, the, the main experience of the apostles as they left is we're so glad because of this totally upside-down reason that we were counted worthy of disgrace, that we were good enough to be treated like nothings. Setbacks don't stop us. They can even encourage us. So the, the Bella Project, it's, it's setback. It's really experienced a huge setback. But uh, God has opened other doors and there are other tools that are available and the gospel is going out. And you know these setbacks have been a sign for the, the believers among the Bella people and they're seeing what's at stake. And they're learning from it. And others who have been hearing the gospel are also seeing it. And they're seeing the witness. And they're seeing the love of people who have uh, brought the gospel to them and are ready to suffer for it. Some of them are suffering for the gospel. And God uses that in surprising ways. There are other tools available. There's actually a version of the Jesus film that's available in their language that um, has become available as a result of, of the efforts And uh, because these workers are now in a neighboring country, I was able to go and visit with them. I was able to get to know them. It was not going to be possible if they were still in that other country. So God takes a closed door and he opens a window. Look at the apostles standing in the temple, freed from the jail and speaking to those in spiritual chains. 
God opens doors. God makes a way. So there were three kinds of messengers in that passage, the apostles, and then the servants of the high priest, and then the angel from Jesus. There's a fourth kind of messenger. You don't find that messenger on the page. That messenger is the reader, the one who believes in the message of the gospel and who believes in Jesus and who has been sent with the good news. You're also a messenger. And God is encouraging you to continue on telling the good news. Even though there may be setbacks, you keep speaking the good news. And perhaps you're, you're here, friend, and you're listening to Gamaliel's advice, and Gamaliel's advice is coming home to you. Don't fight God. You see the way that his hand is at work. You see the finger of God at work in the lives of believers you know, at work around you, at work in your own life. Perhaps Jesus is knocking at the door of your life. Don't fight God, but take the advice of the apostles. Listen, submit, repent. Let's remind ourselves again of these words that Peter spoke in verses 31 to 32. God exalted Jesus to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Let's pray. Father, would you just imprint your word on our hearts? Would you encourage us and strengthen us with the exciting knowledge that Jesus is Lord, that he reigns, that he is king? And would you give us wisdom and insight to treat him as Lord, to act like he is our Lord, and to be able to live the way that we confess? For the glory of your name, through Christ we pray. Amen.